1: Here we go. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us uh, today. Uh, Lots to talk about, so let's get right to the panel. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is senior reporter Tamar Hellerman. How are you doing, Tamar?
0: Hey, Bill. Nice to be back. I spent a couple weeks away.
1: Yeah, we've missed you, but we are very glad you're back. By the way, we're not going to get into it in much detail today because you you know we're working on a special edition of Political Rewind to really drill down. But um, be, um, we haven't had a chance to talk to you about the fact you did a terrific story on a movement that's um, gaining momentum for guaranteed incomes for uh, uh, people here in uh, Georgia, uh, it's, a, it's a, something that uh, some Democratic candidates have campaigned on for a long time. It's really an interesting uh, 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 issue that we're going to talk with you about. But congratulations on really putting a nice piece together on that.
0: Thanks so much, Bill.
1: All right. We're also joined today by your colleague in Washington, Tia Mitchell, the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia? How are you doing how did you survive the cold stormy weather
2: hello everyone and i survived by staying in the house that's my plan for winter
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad you're with us today tia we're joined for the first time uh, on political rewind by steve fennessey steve fennessey is the host of uh, georgia today Uh, But he's former editor-in-chief of Atlanta Magazine. And Georgia Today is a a terrific podcast uh, that you can uh, listen to on our platforms at GPB. But, Steve, your most recent podcast, I believe, is really interesting. You've looked at the uh, Not In My Backyarders out in Rutledge and Morgan County, where there are people who are not celebrating the pending arrival of Rivian, right?
3: No, what's actually um, most interesting, it's hard to find people who are celebrating it. Morgan County is not very big, but they are bringing out the opposition in force against this real economic coup. At least that's what uh, Governor Kemp is saying. So we'll see how it all plays out. But now that it's becoming a political football, too, they're, they're trying to enlist David Perdue to help fight
1: the project. Yeah, well, that'll be interesting to see. It's a huge economic development project, and I suspect that the people who are fighting it are in for a long and uh, uh, difficult battle. Um, What what days do you drop the podcast the people can look for? The
3: podcast comes out every Friday afternoon.
1: Okay, terrific. Uh, So it's available right now uh, on the GPB podcast platform. Um, we're going to be joined in a little while by Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt. She's covering a story, but as soon as that event ends, she's going to be joining us for our discussion tomorrow. Let's start with the news from down in Brunswick. Yesterday morning, we thought that uh, federal prosecutors had reached a plea deal with two of the three men uh, now convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery, the Travis McMichael, and his father Greg who had agreed to plead guilty to federal hate crimes charges apparently in exchange for being moved to serve a big, big portion of their sentences in a federal prison rather than a state prison. But the, uh, uh, the, the judge rejected the plea deal. Talk to us a little about that.
0: Yeah, it was a very unusual move, and it came after Arbury's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, um, voiced her opposition to this this plea deal, and in, in very stark terms, she said that granting—this uh, is a quote—granting these men their preferred conditions of confinement will defeat me. It gives them one last chance to spit in my face after murdering my son. Um and yeah, by the end of the day, the, the federal judge mentioned she would not accept this, this plea agreement that had been negotiated by federal prosecutors. And now the McMichaels have to decide if they indeed are going to go to, to trial. So um, obviously, I think it's a reflection of, of just how kind of public and shocking this case was. Obviously, it impacted people so much down in the area and um, the saga isn't over yet.
1: Yeah, T.A., we, we know it is very unusual when when prosecutors, whether they're federal prosecutors, state prosecutors, whatever, uh, have reached a plea deal. It's very unusual for a judge not to accept the terms. But uh, district court judge Lisa Godby-Wood said, look, I, t- I listened to these uh, parents, both, both uh, of Arbery's parents, uh, gave very emotional testimony as to why they didn't want to see a plea deal arrived at because— they believe, and I guess the McMichaels believe, that serving sentence in a federal prison is somehow more comfortable, less dangerous than being in a state prison. And uh, they didn't want to see them get that favored treatment, uh, Tia.
2: Right. And I think it also showed, you know, at least in this case, it appears that Ahmaud Aubrey's family are being treated As parties to the case in ways that you don't always see with victims families so for example you know um, ahmaud aubrey's parents said hey we felt mislead by the misled by the prosecution they were we told them one thing we felt we were told another and and then we hear about this plea deal and even in court yesterday you heard you know the u.s attorney's office having to admit that you know perhaps the lines of communication um, and the transparency hadn't been there. And that, I feel like that weighed on the judge, again, in ways that we have not always seen for victims' families, and in, 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 not just in a court case this high profile, but in so many routine ways. So it, to me, this is also a really interesting case study just about the criminal justice system and all the moving parts.
3: Yeah, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I mean, this was really an argument over their accommodations, right? Um, these two defendants, state prison versus federal, over the next two decades or so. They would, they would spend the first 20 years or so in federal prison, and then assuming that their state cases were not overturned uh, on appeal or something like that, they would then move on to the state prison system. But what was kind of surprising to me was how the prosecutors, they didn't seem to understand the huge emotional and social dimensions of this case. I mean, apart from the apart from the the lack of the communication uh, with Ahmad Arbery's family, I mean, this this they didn't they really weren't reading the room well.
1: Uh, it's a it's a it's a really interesting way to put that because in fact, um, without a trial, and and Tamara already basically indicated it, the McMichaels and their attorney have till Friday to decide whether they're going to accept a plea deal. Under whatever terms the judge sets for their sentencing for their confinement, one of her objections was she did not want to be handcuffed by the deal that the prosecutors made in terms of uh, the move to federal prison. She said, "Look, if you plead guilty, uh, and, and and that sticks, I'm going to decide the terms of your imprisonment. We're not going to. Be, I'm not going to be bound by the plea deal. But it is interesting Tia, that." Um, Without a trial, we may never hear some of the background of Travis and Greg McMichaels in terms of the racism that apparently animated their murder of Arbery.
2: Right, and I'm convinced that's part of the reason why Ahmad Arbery's family didn't want to allow the McMichaels to kind of like not only go to a preferred facility, which again most defendants don't get to, you know, strike an agreement with the prosecution to help shield them from, you know, perhaps the horrors they fear await them in lockup. Yes, it is a scary place, especially if you're a white man accused of killing black a black man in a high-profile case. Let's be clear. They're looking at a scary situation where they end up in lockup. But they're not the only people who've been accused of something horrific that faced a scary situation when they ended up in lockup. Most of these people don't get to kind of smooth their path forward. But in addition to that, the plea deal, again, avoids the trial, avoids, well, avoids the sentencing part, and avoids all the conversation about what contributing factors. Could affect how they serve their time, and so I, again, reading between the lines, I think that Ahmad Aubrey's family wants that; they want it out there. Those details that shows perhaps the racial bias and animus that led to what happened to Ahmad Aubrey.
0: Tomorrow, and rem- and remember that that. These are kind of lines of questioning that were very much kind of left out by Cobb prosecutors in this state trial. They really avoided a lot of those angles, and there was evidence that that really wasn't discussed a ton. Of course, there was the license plate that was on, um, I believe it was Travis McMichael's car featuring the old uh, Georgia flag, which included some Confederate imagery. Um, there's text messages that had been sent that had been using pretty racist language when it came to describing black people um, so it'll be interesting to see if we do go in that direction um, you know what else is is out there and kind of how that that gets discussed
1: um steve come on back in but i do want to tell say that i think your point about the prosecutors perhaps misreading the mood uh not just of, of Ahmad arbery's mother and father but but i think this case has so um uh a uh, Inflamed uh, uh, th- those people who uh, are concerned about race, what what they view as racist crimes like this, that they that that they, the country wants to see this play out in a way that justice is served.
3: Yeah, and I, I think it's important to point out. I know that the Assistant Attorney General um, Kristen Clark, you know, said that um, that. Well I understand that at least part of the plea deal Travis was it, was it acknowledging that the crime was racially motivated but that isn't near enough when it comes to sort of explicating exactly what what was involved right. in that and and and, the, and and all of the things that that were involved in the in the racial animus that was um concerning this case for sure. <laughs>
1: All right, so we'll watch that Friday. The McMichaels will come back and tell the judge uh, whether they are going to go ahead and, and do a, 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 take a plea deal that the judge, who would allow the judge to set the terms of their sentencing, or whether they will stand trial. And if they want to stand trial, that trial begins on Monday in Brunswick. Um, Tamar, let's move on to a story that you've been covering very closely for the AJC. Um, on Saturday night... Donald Trump held one of his rallies in uh, Texas, and he, as usual, uh, had a lot to say about a lot of different subjects. But one of the things he talked about with great passion was the investigations of his efforts to overturn the election results in several venues, New York, Washington, and, of course, here in Atlanta, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has now got the go-ahead to impanel a special grand jury to look at whether Trump may in fact have have illegally uh, uh, tried to influence the outcome of the election, a recounting of the election or a resetting of the election. And let's just listen to a little of what Trump said and then talk about how Willis responded. If these radical, vicious, racist
3: prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C.,
1: in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. Uh, Tomorrow, as a result of those comments... Fonnie Willis uh, contacted the uh, FBI here in Atlanta and said, I need your help in looking at whether we have proper security to protect us from these potential uh, demonstrations that Trump is calling into action.
0: Yeah. I mean, all of this represents a, a major escalation in rhetoric that we've seen from former President Trump. Um, you know, he's been kind of reticent to talk about some of these investigations, especially what's been happening in Atlanta uh, over the last year. You know, he's he's tweeted or I guess sent out um, messages in the past through his super PAC talking about his phone call with, with Brad Raffensperger in which he asked him to find uh, almost 12,000 12, votes to overturn his election defeat. Uh, but he hasn't gone after D.A. Willis or any um, of those prosecutors kind of nearly um, kind of in, in personal terms as he did the other night. You know, he didn't mention them by name, but it's also worth noting that every single one of those prosecutors that he's referring to, um, every single one of them is black Um Yes. And so I think that that led D.A. Willis to to kind of go back and request this extra security. She mentioned, of course, hearing from critics of of this investigation who don't like what she's doing. Uh, but, of course, when Trump himself starts um, kind of really stirring the pot, I think there's a big fear that this could turn into a giant security risk. Um, and so um, Steve, it, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah.
1: I apologize, Tamara. I did not mean to cut you off there. Um Steve, uh, in Tamar's article uh, uh, for the AJC, she quotes uh, the Willis letter to the local FBI office. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the lines is, uh, my staff and I will not be influenced or intimidated by anyone as this investigation moves forward. I have an obligation to ensure that those who work in and visit the Fulton County Courthouse, the adjoining Fulton County Government Center, and surrounding areas are safe. And, of course, Steve... Um, this conjures up when Trump rallies his people to demonstrate the January 6th uh, insurrection, the storming of the United States Capitol, Steve.
3: It does. And 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 when I hear about Fonnie Willis making uh, this plea to the FBI, you know, someone who's been around Atlanta a long time. And I think about the Fulton County Courthouse, I think about what happened with Brian Nichols. And so what what she's what she's bringing up, I think, are very Valid concerns, and especially when you talk about Fulton County, the, the memories there are very long about that horrific event that, that took the lives of, I think, four people. Um, so this is this is a very serious thing, and um, I, I don't know where this grand jury will lead, uh, but um, the the safety of that building and of her office to me are not something to be to be underestimated.
1: Tia, uh, the, hearing those words might ha- must have had an emotional impact on you. You were trapped inside the Capitol on the day of the insurrection. And so to hear Trump calling for his people to demonstrate whatever demonstration means these days to his supporters uh, must have had an impact on you.
2: Yeah, I don't, you know me, I don't really look at it that way as far as the impact on me. Um, Even though I do have that personal connection to January 6th, but I look at it as, number one, I think that you can always tell a lot about what's on former President Trump's mind when he puts out these statements and makes these speeches. And I think he is very fearful of the January 6th committee. He's starting to focus a lot on them in recent days. Um, he just put out another statement, I think, this morning, or at least last night. Um, but it also, I think, it not only is he worried about the committee, but he is trying to rally the truth. And the fact that he is using this type of dangerous rhetoric, and rhetoric that we know people around him try to tell him not to. Like, you know there are people who are like, Hey, don't do this. This isn't good. And he's doing it anyways. I think shows that he thinks his back is against the wall and the only way he can get out of this is another insurrection. That's what I feel like he's saying.
1: Um, that is a scary thought to you. Tomorrow it's going to be fascinating to watch how these statements by Trump are going to play into the gubernatorial campaign between David Perdue, and Brian Kemp. We know that David Perdue has Trump's backing. And in fact, uh, David Perdue has just dropped his first commercial of the campaign as he launches his first statewide tour. And the commercial doesn't have David Perdue in it. It's Donald Trump talking to camera, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't feature David Perdue's voice. It doesn't feature his signature uh, denim jacket that we've all come to know over the years. It's just the words of Trump. And it goes to show just just how much that race really is about the former president and kind of his clout in Georgia going forward. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this rhetoric um, kind of gets advanced as we get closer to May 2nd, which is when this special grand jury uh, in, in Fani Willis's probe will uh, will be impaneled. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I— especially should the DA decide that she want to wants to advance charges i mean this could very much be the kind of this this media and public circus in downtown atlanta and just as steve mentioned you know this is an area that's super dense we're, we're near the georgia capitol we're near city hall multiple federal buildings, Georgia State University. Um, I can just imagine the Secret Service, the protesters, the counter-protesters. This could be very much kind of a venue uh, for people to be express- expressing their, their uh, pleasure or displeasure with the former president.
1: Um, Tia? Do we have yeah, you there, I, Tia? I do, sorry, I,
2: was, I put my phone on here. I, you know, I think it's a venue but I just, I, I go back to this all could be very dangerous. And, you know, I think that we talk about patriotism and democracy. And if we care about that the way we say we do, we should allow the court system and, you know, investigations and even Congress, the people we've elected to look into this and not feel like people at home should have to take things in their own hands.
1: All right, be, um, before we move on, uh, uh, Steve, one of the things I, I think is fascinating about the David Perdue commercial, which you, I think you said you've seen, um, is it introduces what is apparently going to be a, a theme for his campaign. And as much as he's going to run against Brian Kemp directly, accusing Kemp of not supporting Donald Trump's uh, uh, conspiracy theory about the election, uh, all that sort of thing, uh, this is the Stop Stacy tour. Uh, His whole uh, reason for running is he's the guy who can beat Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp can't. And I think it's uh, fascinating that uh, that's the theme of this first big uh, tour of of his.
3: Yeah, well, I, I saw that ad this morning and when I first saw it and I heard that narrator's voice sort of introducing us to the to the to the bit. I thought it was a Saturday Night Live cold open for a second because it just had that feel to it. Um, and, and you're right about um, we don't see David Perdue because he's defining himself not b- by what he is, by but by what he is not, and both in terms of Brian Kemp and also, of course, Stacey Abrams.
1: Okay, um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way uh, right now and come back with a lot more. By the way, um, I got to – text from Amy Steigerwald, frequent panelist, of course, on Political Rewind. While we were talking about the uh, uh, plea deal down in Brunswick, she said that we shouldn't overlook the fact that if these uh, 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 convicted murderers go to federal prison, it relieves the state from the burden of paying for them while they're in a state facility, which is a very expensive proposition. Uh, whether that plays into the thinking or not, Amy Staggerwald points out that is something to consider. Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. <music> G.P.B. Steve Fennessy. Tamar Hellerman and Tia Mitchell of the AJC join me for Political Rewind uh, today. Um, Tamar, we haven't heard a lot in the past months about Sonny Perdue's interest in becoming Chancellor of the University System of Georgia. And when David Perdue declared he was going to run against Brian Kemp for governor, there were many people who thought that would end Sonny Perdue, his cousin's chances of being, uh, of being given that job. But now that Kemp has shuffled around members of the Board of Regents and put people who might be more likely to, in fact, approve Sonny Perdue, uh, his name is back in, in the mix.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people forget um, just how long term that relationship between Brian Kemp and Sonny Perdue stretches back. And in many ways, I think Brian Kemp wouldn't uh, have been in many of the positions that he's in now um, without the backing of Sonny Perdue. Um, Of course, when Sonny was governor, um, you know, he supported Kemp's run for state Senate. Um, You know, he tapped Kemp to fill the open post for secretary of state in 2010. And, of course, when he was in Washington serving as Trump's uh, agriculture secretary, he helped behind the scenes convince Trump to endorse Kemp uh, for the governor during the Republican runoff. So um, I think in in many ways there's a sense, you know, is this kind of his thank you to um, to Sonny Perdue?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I kind
2: of agree with Tamar. I think it's the opposite way around. It's not that, you know, it's harder for Brian Kemp to make Sonny Perdue the leader of the state universities. It's that by making Sonny Perdue the leaders of the state universities, it makes it harder for Sonny Perdue to hold hands with David Perdue during this gubernatorial campaign. I think it helps to further neutralize Sonny Perdue and to be quite honest I don't necessarily get the sense that even without this job Sonny Perdue might not have necessarily chosen sides because like Tamar said he and Brian Kemp do have such history but he definitely can't if he becomes Brian Kemp's hand-picked leader of the the university system so to me this makes it pretty clear that Sonny Perdue is going to you know Let his cousin stand on his own two feet and it won't necessarily be a a huge surrogate during this governor's race.
3: Yeah, if you think about it, the fact that Sonny Perdue's cousin David is challenging Brian Kemp, it really leaves the governor no choice but to kind of double down on backing Sonny Perdue for chancellor. Think about it if he backs down, it'll look like he's punishing Sonny just because he's related to David. That's not a very Christian attitude. Plus, um, I mean, you're right, Sonny Perdue was. (laughs) He was a stalwart Trumper, and one of the few cabinet members, I mean, let's remember that, who stuck with Trump all the way to the end. So backing Sonny Perdue shows that Trump is, you know, in his own way, he's still, or excuse me, shows that Kemp is still very Trump-affiliated, even though Trump doesn't like Kemp at all.
1: Yeah. Um, Emma Hurt just jumped on from Axios Atlanta. Emma, we're glad you were able to uh, join us. I know you've been out covering another story, but thank you for uh, uh, making time to be with us as well. So let me plunge you right into this Sonny Perdue uh, story, if I may. Well, one of the th- th- we one of the things we know about this is Sonny Perdue has made a couple of statements suggesting that he's not happy with the culture of learning in state universities, which you know conjures up a lot of the images of Republicans who are trying to crack down on on a variety of things like critical race theory being taught in schools uh, and, and that liberal culture of campus uh, educations. Um, and, and as a result of that, there have been protests, maybe not just of that, but the fact that he's a political man first, there have been protests at universities among students and faculties about Sunny getting the job, and there's at least one accreditation agency which says that the university system could be a, a, a lose its accreditation if he gets the job. Emma,
4: hey Bill, hello from uh, CLOB. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, yeah, I yeah, I think what you've lit on is another reason why um, why you know it makes sense for Governor Kemp to allow this. Um, Chancellorship nominee to keep going forward because they align on this issue that really is coming to the fore in education at all levels in in our state and across the country. And the other thing I just wanted to add, um, I, I'm sorry for what I've missed if it's redundant, but you know when when David Perdue announced, I asked him this question last time he ran. Your cousin um, Sonny Purdue, without campaigning with you every time, are we going to expect that this time? And he basically dodged that question and said, "I hope that you know his chancellorship nomination is separate from this." And, and so that that sort of dodge to me it was very illuminating. Um, and that it is there's this there's this tension there, and um, and I think what what the other panelists have said is is correct about seeing Sonny on the campaign trail.
1: Steve.
3: <clears throat> yeah, I think it's <clears> – <throat> excuse me, sorry. Bill, you, you mentioned these um, – you get the quote-unquote liberal issues, um, uh, educational issues that Sonny Perdue may have a concern with. But let's not also forget that there are also some real scientific things that he's brought up that a lot of people take issue with, uh, specifically – I mean, he's a climate change denier. And that has really um, concerned mm-hmm. a lot of the educationalists in state of Georgia and beyond –
1: um, we're going to watch how this moves forward. tomorrow. I just want to uh, uh, kind of amplify something you said. It's incalculable how important Sonny Perdue has been to Brian Kemp's political career. Um, and you mentioned the fact that when Donald Trump tweeted his support for Brian Kemp in the Republican primary... Uh, For governor, he was he was falling behind in that race. Casey Cagle was with was the odds on favorite to win the Republican nomination. And from the day that Trump tweeted uh, his support for Kemp, which came from from Sonny and, of course, his cousin David, ironically, at the time, it turned Brian Kemp's fortunes politically completely around tomorrow.
0: And you're forgetting Nick Ayers, um, kind of the, the uh. protege of Sonny Perdue, who for a while was looking like he might have become or he, he was going to become Donald Trump's chief of staff. He turned down that job, what was still enormously influential at the White House. Um, and at that moment, when that endorsement came in 2015, Casey Cagle was wounded, but he certainly wasn't out yet. Um, at that point, we'd seen the the audio tape um, that had been leaked, but I think there was still an expectation that that or or maybe you know a hope that kegel could pull through but after that endorsement came through from donald trump it was a landslide victory for for brian kemp and and just allowed him to cruise uh going into the summer and fall months so it was absolutely a, a giant moment for his campaign
1: absolutely um all right, let me, uh, Emma, I, I want to introduce you a little better than I did a few minutes ago when you joined the late. You do, you are a reporter for Axios Atlanta, which is a daily newsletter that people can subscribe to. Um, you just go to Axios, is it AxiosAtlanta.com where you can uh, d- check it out for the first time before subscribing, Emma?
4: I believe it is Axios.com slash Atlanta, but close enough. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you for that. I appreciate that. What have you been uh, out covering this morning?
4: So I was covering an early morning uh, committee meeting here where – Republicans just passed a substitute of the county commission redistricting maps in Gwinnett County over the heads of the Democratic-led county delegation. So this is pulling what's normally a local bill controlled by the local delegation um, off the local calendar and putting it in a Republican-controlled process. And it it seems like um, it seems like these maps will probably pass, and then there will be litigation over them because this is. This is
1: a remarkable process. Yeah, there are a number of counties where this same thing is happening. We're going to get into it in much more detail on our show uh, tomorrow, Uh, not today, but I I assume we'll see something on Axios Atlanta, as we will at GPB News and and the AJC today. The way in which Republicans are trying to step into what is normally a county process and um, maneuver lines uh, to their favor. That's a great story for us and we'll do more with it tomorrow. Why don't we do this? Let's get our final break out of the show right now and come back with uh, the many other subjects I'd love to cover with this panel. Mm. As we do the show live on uh, Tuesday morning, we're uh, seeing breaking news. We we know that recently there have been a spate of bomb threats uh, at historically black colleges and universities, and... Um, News is uh, coming in today, right now, that uh, two HBCUs in Georgia uh, just received bomb threats uh, this morning, Fort Valley State, Spelman College, among several nationwide, and I wanted to make sure we uh, got word out about that. Uh, Tia, so far, these bomb threats have proven to be false. Uh, There's been no sign of any kind of explosive devices in the other incidents that have taken place uh, recently recently. Um, but uh, this is a very disturbing trend to you.
2: Yeah, and what you guys probably don't know about me is when I was a student at Florida A&M University, we didn't have bomb threats. We had bombings that did not kill anyone but injured a faculty member and the person arrested turned out to be a white supremacist. He's now serving a life sentence in federal prison. So these events are not to be taken lightly. Um, and I do know that Uh, you know, law enforcement, federal authorities are trying to get to the bottom of it. HBCUs have been targeted. There was a round of bomb threats yesterday. There were a a round of bomb threats a few weeks ago. So this is Spelman College's second time receiving a bomb threat. And the impact is you cannot just um, try to hope for the best when any, you know, any school that receives this type of threat has to take it seriously every single time. So there's a lot of manpower, there's a lot of, you know, evacuations, getting law enforcement, doing sweeps that not only disrupt the day, but they cost a lot of money. So, you know, it, it, I'm sure that um, they're going to try their best to figure out who's calling in the threats. and whoever it is, whether it's a bad actor who truly wishes harm on HBCU or someone doing it for another reason, they're going to be in a big, a lot of trouble.
1: Let's um, also mention that yesterday there were a number of threats at, at schools in various states, and one of them was at Albany State University at HBCU down in, in Albany, uh, Georgia. Um, so that's a story that we'll be keeping our eye on as well, of course. Um, Tomorrow, let's turn back to electoral politics. Uh, there, there were an interesting jolt yesterday that featured uh, Vernon Jones, Vernon Jones, uh, who was former CEO of DeKalb County, state legislator, uh, is now a candidate for the Republican nomination for governor. Uh, He was a Democrat who became an adamant Trump supporter and gained a lot of attention uh, because of his uh, support for uh, Trump, especially because he's an African-American. Now it appears that perhaps... He's being kind of urged to get out of that race and and change directions, uh, because with Purdue and Kemp in the race, the last thing that Republicans want is a third candidate draining votes away from the other two, the two so-called major candidates.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a fear, especially in the Purdue camp, I think, that this could that Vernon Jones could be this spoiler who could kind of drag the race into an expensive uh, GOP runoff. Later, uh, later this summer, taking away time and resources when you know the nominee should be focusing on Stacey Abrams and and kind of going after her. It's worth noting, you know, that in the latest polling that we've seen from Quinnipiac, um, you know, Vernon Jones had about 10% of the the primary vote, which of course is nowhere near what he needs to win. But that certainly is enough to give him leverage, especially given that Purdue was trailing Kemp in that same poll by about seven percent. Um, So the question is, uh, what will Vernon Jones do with that leverage? Will he try and get a Trump endorsement if she shifts to another race? And if so, which race does he choose, especially when there are Trump-endorsed candidates in many other statewide races already?
1: Yeah, um, Emma, there's talk that perhaps he would uh, uh, enter the 7th District congressional uh, race where Republicans are going to try to challenge Carolyn Uh, Bordeaux. Of course, we remember Lucy McBath is already in that race as well for the Democratic nomination. But uh, I think uh, Tamar makes a good point, Emma, that uh, Jones, if he changes races, uh, might in fact have some leverage to get Trump to give him an endorsement for whatever he does.
4: Right. And I mean, you know, there's a a couple um, Republican congressional seats that are vacant that he could go for. And if if the house flips um, Republican in D.C., that becomes an attractive job, right? Um, and you know, if I'm the Purdue team, I'm doing whatever I can to back channel to the Trump um, to Trump world that that Jones, please, thank you, but please uh, exit this race because that 10% could really make a difference in in a tight race. Um, yeah,
3: <laughs> I'm been... in a kind of awe of Vernon Jones and have been for a long time because he doesn't, the man doesn't go (laughs) and he keeps reinventing himself in ways that continue to surprise me. Um, He's always had a really good knack for kind of gauging where the political winds are blowing and then using those to his advantage. And, and, and I think back like 20 years when he was CEO at DeKalb County, he was, he sort of oversaw when, when DeKalb County, they, they extended life insurance and health benefits to domestic partners of gay employees. And stuff. that was very ahead of the time for, for, for Georgia. It was DeKalb County was the first one to do that, but yet he's always had these personal issues that have sprung up and, I mean, serious allegations about how he treats women. Um, And yet there's a picture of him, you know, in the oval office when uh, Donald Trump was president. So he's just somebody who I think really knows how to stay in the public eye and, and use that to his advantage politically.
1: Um TSO Emma uh, Hurt suggests that what, what uh, makes the most sense for him would be for Jer- Vernon Jones would need to look at, at a Republican uh, district that uh, uh, might be available as opposed to running uh, against a Democrat. Uh, do you think uh, she's got a point there? Yeah,
2: I, um, you know, we're hearing different things. I don't, I can't spook my fellow jolter, Greg Bluestein, but he's hearing a lot of things, and we'll be reporting it soon. So I don't know how much I can say, but let's just say, you know, well, this is what we know. Vernon Jones can't go back to the Democratic Party. He didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left him and said, good riddance. And he lives in DeKalb County. and He can't run for anything in DeKalb County. So he's going to have to... You know, he might not have to move physically, but he's going to have to think likely outside of metro Atlanta if he's going to try to find a race that is winnable, at least.
1: Well, we're going to watch with interest to see exactly how that uh, uh, plays out. Uh, I want to turn to a story that uh, The New York Times published uh, earlier this week. They were, they've looked at the number of Secretary of State races across the country where there are Republican candidates who are in the mix for those uh, uh, offices who have been uh, supporters of Trump's big lie. And uh, Emma Hurt, the New York Times suggests that the notion that – here's the lead to their story. Nearly two dozen Republicans who have publicly questioned or disputed the results of the 2020 election are running for secretary of state across the country – in some cases after being directly encouraged by allies of former President Donald Trump. Their candidacies are alarming watchdog groups, Democrats, and some fellow Republicans who worry that these Trump supporters, if elected to posts that exist largely to safeguard and administer the democratic process, would weaponize those offices to undermine it. And of course, right here in Georgia, we have Jody Heiss, Emma, who is a Trump candidate for secretary of state who fits in to the description the times is giving emma
4: right i mean this is a trend we've seen growing since um since last year and it's just remarkable that the secretary of state's races are getting so much attention in this job that honestly from everyone i've talked to who's worked in that office doesn't seem like such a great job seems pretty <laughs> mostly a lot of it is kind of boring and and uh you don't get any credit for licensing and all of that stuff and then you know elections uh, the, the attention on the elections and this po- like politicization of it that we cannot seem to unwind has made them these hotbeds of um really extreme views and very i mean if you look at from jody heist to b win the the range and the the fierceness of the debate here we have in georgia is really um really remarkable
3: I'm a, yeah, it is boring um, because I think when, when you look at it traditionally, it's all about sort of uh, maintaining um, the balance, the the, the electoral uh, mechanisms. But when you're talking about some of these folks who want to get into the Secretary of State's office because they want to put their, their fingers on the scales, I mean, that's, that's where it gets really alarming to me um, because it sort of redefines what Traditionally, we've come to think of what the Secretary of State's office is. It's somebody like Brad Raffensperger, who is by trade an engineer, somebody who's just very mechanized in his thinking and is thinking objectively about it. But now we we have this whole redefinition of of what the office could mean. And and that's uh, can be alarming.
1: So, uh, Tia, uh, Emma says, you know, why is this off? Who wants to be in this job? I understand her point. But I want to read another graph from the New York Times article that really caught my attention. The intense focus on a once obscure state-level office has dramatically transformed its place in American politics and the pool of candidates it attracts. Campaigns for secretaries of state this year are attracting more money, more attention, and more brazenly partisan candidates than ever Uh, before. And let's remember the fact that Jody Heiss uh, would rather be Secretary of State than a member of the United States Congress apparently.
2: (laughs) Well, I think some of that is fealty to Trump. So, And, you know, so fealty to Trump means wanting to quote-unquote stop the steal, which is, we know, based on misinformation and disinformation about the election. But If you believe, or if you say you believe the election was fraudulent or stolen, and you can actually do something about it if you're Secretary of State. You actually have a lot of influence in a state like Georgia on how elections are carried out. Um, Just yesterday, I moderated a discussion that was sponsored by the Carter Center, as well as a kind of an election information center at Harvard, and the whole conversation was about how to depoliticize election administration at the federal state and even local level. And so, and for most of America, that's not what we have. And it really shows that, you know, for so, for so many years, our whole country, our democracy is held up in a lot of ways by just the assumption that when it comes down to it, people will do the right thing. There are not the safeguards and checks and balances that, we like to think if people won't do the right thing and that's what's scary about the the partisans who are the extreme partisans who have supported lies thinking about putting them in charge of elections
1: tomorrow
0: and it just goes to show how much kind of these shifts that we've seen in our political system over the last uh, 20 years. I mean, the the job that Jody Heiss has, you know, a safe Republican seat that he probably could have held on to for the rest of his life, you know, worked his way yeah. up the, the ladder, maybe chaired a committee one day. Um, that was less appealing than, than doing what for a long time was considered a really mundane kind of job in, in state politics. Uh, but okay, it goes to show how much has changed. Yeah.
1: Although what's interesting about that, uh, Tamar, is that the legislature in their election reform bill uh, took a bunch of powers away from the Secretary of State. And and so, I mean, obviously, Jody Heiss, if he's elected, will be able to work with Republicans uh, in the legislature. But in fact, uh, the Secretary of State's office may be a little bit less powerful moving forward as a result of SB202, which I think is interesting. All right. um, We've got very little time left, and I've hoped to get to two issues. I'm not sure we can. Emma, you're down at the Capitol today. At four o'clock this afternoon, we're going to have the first committee hearing on uh, the bill that is called constitutional carry, which, you know, is a, a term that really ought to be called maybe permitless gun carry. Emma, um, it's Brian Kemp's big showcase issue as he runs for re-election.
4: It is, and I just can't stop thinking about the fact that Seventy percent of those polled by the AJC on this issue said they did not want this to happen. That's the same poll that showed Governor Kemp narrowly beating Stacey Abrams in November. So um, it doesn't I don't I don't see that stopping it, though. Um, it has broad Republican support and all of the all of the stakes have been have been planted on in the earth on this by Republicans.
1: Yeah, you know, Steve, uh, back in the day when Roy Barnes, former governor, was actually a member of the state house, he used to have a hidden whist- wooden train whistle that he would uh, duck under his desk and blow when a bill was definitely on track to be railroaded through the General Assembly. I think if Roy had that whistle now, he'd be blowing it in terms of constitutional carry. <laughs>
3: yeah, for, for sure. Um, I, it's The timing of, the, of this, too, I mean, is... Uh, It's obvious, but probably needs to be stated that 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 he needs to show his conservative bona fides, um, especially in this contentious primary battle against David Perdue. And that's then this is just exhibit A of that.
1: All right, we're going to watch that unfold, and tomorrow we'll talk about what comes out of that committee hearing. Um, tomorrow, as I said at the very top of the show, we are putting together a couple weeks down the road, a special edition in which we're going to look at this whole question of guaranteed income, uh, which you wrote such a terrific piece about. Just tell us, just very, give us a very quick little uh, look at what the movement is all about right now. It's been around for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's an idea that was embraced by uh, Martin Luther King, and as as a way to kind of. Um address poverty and income inequality and a lot of different cities around the country uh, mostly led by progressive democrats are looking at it as a way to kind of uh, fill in the gaps where a lot of our social safety net has missed Um, so there's two pilot programs that are about to be launched in atlanta targeting low-income georgians and the hope is that it can try and help address some income inequality we've seen
1: so um, I just uh, – uh, Natalie just whispered in my ear that we've retweeted uh, your uh, story on guaranteed uh, income. I think we're just about out of time, unfortunately, for today's show. You've covered a lot of ground, uh, all of you, and I'm very grateful to you for doing that. Steve Fantasy, thank you for joining us. We'll look forward to your podcast, Georgia, today. Come back and be with us again. Tia Mitchell, Tamar Hallerman, Emma Hurt, always a pleasure to have uh, you on – the show. And Emma, again, thank you for uh, running back to join us after uh, being out reporting on a story earlier today. That's it for us for today. My thanks to uh, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer to uh natalie mendenhall our senior producer and of course to sam bermas dawes our producer for the work they do to make this show what we hope it will be which is a smart conversation with really talented uh people uh we'll be back again with a new edition of the show tomorrow in the meantime i'm bill Nigat. please take care stay healthy uh stay away from omicron by wearing your mask when you're out and about and uh Let's get boosted. You know, I think only 40% of Americans have had their booster shots right now. Why don't you join them all? I'll see you again tomorrow.